Thanks for checking out the Reveal Vineyard podcast. We are a Jesus-centered community in El Mirage, Arizona. We hope through these conversations your spirit will be stirred. For more information, you can visit our website at www.revealvineyard.com. We're on week number two of our series uh, called Can I Ask That? And we've asked for questions from you uh, over the last several weeks, and you have... uh, uh, responded uh, in a very healthy way. And so we've been taking some of those questions of faith, some of those questions that are difficult, uh, and trying to answer them. Uh, Ed is a uh, retired pastor. He's one of my pastoral coaches. Uh, I've told you before, affectionately, uh, Ed is, uh, uh, quite honestly, he's the smartest person I've ever had the privilege to know. Um, he uh, has challenged my faith in numerous different ways, uh, he's left me sometimes in a minor crisis of faith after talking with him about trying to figure out exactly where I land on something. Uh, but what I've discovered is that that tension and that struggle has been good. And when I finally did land, uh, my faith was stronger for it. And so part of what we're doing is we're going to uh, explore some difficult questions in the Bible, uh, knowing that you may not agree with everything that might be said, but the idea is is that you would be driven to God's word that your faith would become your faith, right? You just wouldn't take my word for it when I'm up here uh, preaching that you would begin to dissect God's word uh, for yourself. So we're going to share different thoughts, different views on some ideas uh, and just kind of go through uh, some of those questions. So uh, join me as we pray and then we're going to jump in. So Lord, um, as we look at your word today, um, some of it is very plain to us. And then there's other parts that um, need to be worked through and worked at. And uh, Lord, we confess our value that we place in your word and in your truth and how it is life-changing. But um, we also realize that uh, it takes work and it takes uh, effort often in order to interpret it in a way uh, that is life-giving. And so that is our hope, to be good stewards of the truth that you have given us. And so we present ourselves in that way. I pray that you would stir, Holy Spirit, in each one of us today a greater uh, hunger and awe of you and of your truth and of your word. Uh, And we ask for your spirit to fill us, fill us over and over and over again. We pray for you to fill us. Be with us as we receive our offering and we place you first, even in our finances, with an attitude of worship. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen. Well, Ed, I'm glad you came back after last week. We didn't run you off. Uh, We talked about several different topics last week, if you weren't here. Uh, We talked about hell and a few uh, uh, different topics with that. We talked um, about uh, topics of prayer and, and such like that. So one of the other main topics that was asked was this idea of the Bible. Uh, And it was probably the second most uh, cards that we received. Uh, Questions like, how should I read the Bible? Um, Questions about what's the best way to apply the Bible to my life? Uh, So let's just talk, start general. What what are your ideas, thoughts on the Bible? How should it be read? Someone out there who is not reading the Bible, what's their steps? Turn off your television. Put away your video game console. Uh, put away your cell phone. Get away from the computer. 
Now, that's not a forever thing, but uh, I'd suggest you try and carve out a consistent half hour a day, which really isn't much. Uh, you know, that's two and a half hours a week. There's 168 hours a week, so that's one and a half percent of the week. And make that a, a focused time to study uh, the Bible. And I, I emphasize the word study. Uh, I, I told Marty one of the things people may find shocking is uh, I'm going to tell people to stop reading their Bible because uh, far too many people, you know, it's a chapter a day keeps the devil away. And it's, you know, they just read through it and read through it and read through it. You know, I got that, don't understand that, turn the page, let's keep going. So the emphasis is, is on study, and that's uh, really easier to do than you might think. It, it, uh, uh, the point is, you've got to have some tools to do it, and I would recommend that uh, you buy a study Bible. It's going to cost you 25 to $35 Ed is talking from 1970 standards. It's going to cost you 60 to $80. I checked Amazon last night. It's 25 to $35. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still a page turner. If, if it doesn't smell like a book, it's not a book. You know, you've got to have some dust on those pages. Uh, but the thing about study Bibles is every book has an introduction, and that may be one, two, three, four pages, and it goes into who wrote it, and when was it written, and why was it written, to who was it written. So it gives you that background, that context. And if, if you go into any of the classes I teach on interpreting the Bible, you'll hear this phrase, context is king. So it begins to give you the context for that book of the Bible. And uh, the other thing the study Bible will have is, is articles on uh, topics that are covered. So you'll be reading along and it'll say something about a certain topic, atonement. And so there will be a short article on atonement trying to explain what it is. It has footnotes. Read the articles, read the footnotes, read the little blurbs uh, that come up. And it's going to slow you down. You know, in that half hour, you know, you may only get through uh, one or two pages. You know, this is not a competition. It's not a race. You're trying to learn something. Now, the question is, where do you start? And I always uh, figure it's a good idea to start with Jesus. And Jesus is found in the Gospels. So I would start with the Gospels, and uh, I usually tell people to start with the Gospel of John, and every Gospel has a particular purpose. Uh, John talks most about the divinity of Christ. So as you study the Gospel of John, you'll be learning about why we believe that Jesus is God. Then I would read a second Gospel, the Gospel of Luke. You know, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, I had a friend, this is a total digression, but I had a friend who uh, had 
four sons, and uh, the first three were named Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they had the fourth son, and, and they named him Carl. And I never understood that. Was he redheaded? Was he a redheaded child? <laughs> Is that what it was? But anyway, uh, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic gospels. And synoptic simply means multiple viewpoints. So they're telling the same story in basically the same sequence from slightly different viewpoints. Uh, Mark uh, from a uh, get-it-done, no-frills uh, viewpoint talking basically to a Roman audience, Matthew talking to a Jewish audience. He has the most Old Testament illusions. Uh, Luke's talking to a Greek audience. He's a Greek speaker. Uh, and so he's uh, writing to Gentiles, and you all are Gentiles. So uh, Luke's the gospel written for you. Uh, some interesting things about Luke. It's, it's the gospel that affirms women the most out of all the four Gospels. So uh, I would read Luke because it is a synoptic Gospel and it'll give you the basic flow of all of the synoptics. Now the, the thing you'll notice, and this will trouble some of you, is uh, John and the synoptics tell some of the same stories. They don't tell them in the same order. Uh, do not let that trouble you. The purpose of telling stories in biblical times was to make a point. And Luke, Matthew, and Mark were trying to make a different point than John was trying to make. So he placed his stories in different order. For example, in the synoptics, uh, driving the money changers out of the temple happens in the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, and in John, it, it's the first thing that happens. So, you know, and there's reasons for that. We could talk about that. Uh, but anyway, read Luke to get a feeling of the synoptics, and then that would lead right into Acts, which Luke also wrote. So you've got two books by the same author. Luke would be the story of Jesus. Acts would be the story of the church. Then dip into Paul with a, a letter, and I would stay away from Romans for a while. Uh, I'd take Galatians, which I call Romans light. So let me, let me interrupt you and ask yeah. you. So when reading Scripture, what is the arc that you're reading the Bible? What is the lens that you're reading the Bible through? I'm reading it... Uh, can you amplify that question? Well... If you look at the whole of Scripture, yep. what, is, what is it telling? It's telling the story of God's interaction with creation. It begins with creation. It ends with new creation. It's telling the story of his interaction with the people of his creation all the way through. And it's uh, talking about his purpose as he reveals it, and it doesn't get revealed all at once. That's called progressive revelation, and how he encourages people to move uh, towards that. So if the Bible does not line up with something that we know historically, yeah. does that present an issue for you? Nope. Because the Bible was not primarily written in a history book. 
That's right. Same, now, it wasn't a science. This text is really either. important. Second Timothy three sixteen seventeen says all scripture is inspired by God. It means it's God breathed, profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Um, that means that the Bible's purpose is to equip us in matters of faith. Yes. And for me, if there's something that doesn't line up in history, or if there's something that we read in Scripture that we would say, well, that's not true from science, it does not present an issue to me. Because the Bible was not first written as a history book. It was not first written as a science book. Mm -hmm. It's written as a book of faith, telling God's pursuit of his creation that has fallen away and his efforts to reconcile creation to Mm -hmm. himself. Do you agree with that? that? Yeah, that's the arc of the story is, um, you know, God has a, a purpose. He wants a people for himself. In fact, uh, what's called the covenant of redemption, which was made amongst the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before creation even happened. The covenant of redemption simply says the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity agreed. There will be a people. They will be our people, and we will be their God. And so that's the whole purpose, is how do we work that out when the, this perp, these people turn out to be rebellious and wicked and don't want to be, <laughs> uh, they don't want to have us as their God. And so how, how, do, how does that story work out? So one of the things, if you read in Scripture, you start at book one, if you started in Genesis, you're not going to get very far along before you're going to be faced with a head-scratcher. It says, in the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. Day one, he said, let there be light. The light was good. Uh, He called the light day and darkness night, and he separated the two. uh, And by the way, he says, let there be light. Two days before he creates the sun. You jumped me. So then day, day three, he creates vegetation. And day four, it's, he creates the sun, moon, and the stars. And so now we're left with, well, where did light come from before the sun, the moon, and the stars was created? And there are a lot of ideas behind that. And some of them are decent ideas. Some of them, you know, the basic ones of, well, God is light and God was the original light source and scripture talks about God being light. I find it odd that God would say to himself, let there be light, like he switched himself on or something, but you know, um, and so some of that is, is, is the creation account trying to tell us from a scientific view how creation came or is it trying to say that God is the creator and spoke creation into existence? And uh, if, if, if we're going to read Scripture through the lens of authority of Scripture, we take a stamp and we put authority of Scripture on it. I'm not saying Scripture's not authoritative. But when we read through that lens, then we read every narrative, every account, and say, well, it must be authoritative, and we now have to fit the authority of God into this text, where some of it is just a narrative. It's just explaining what happened and doesn't need, mean that it has to be a doctrine or based on theology that we live out today. And so for me, the idea of the creation story, if you take it as a literal six days, I have no issues with that. Um, I personally do not. I, I, I believe it's telling the, the, the idea that God is creator, 
God spoke it into existence, and God is the sustainer of all that we see. But if you want to read Scripture primarily as a science book, there's a lot that needs to be explained. Some of the ancient world view of how the cosmos is created, that the Bible speaks of a glass dome being over the earth, holding back the waters from the heavens. We know that isn't true, but that was part of the culture that God worked with in that period of time. And you talk a lot about that, that God works with a culture within that framework of culture, even though what the culture is currently uh, engaging in is not his best or maybe even truth. Yes. Yeah. In biblical interpretation, it's called accommodation. God is accommodating himself to work with what he's got to work with. And as far as biblical cosmology go, that's not cosmetology. It's, it's cosmology. As far as biblical cosmology goes, biblical cosmology is whack. I mean, uh, this whole idea of heaven being up, uh, you know, we've sent rocket ships billions and billions of miles into space, and we haven't found heaven and we haven't found God, and that doesn't bother me. Heaven's not, heaven's not up. Uh, hell's not down, although to Unless the you're ancients down to Tucson. There you go, there you go, uh, or to San Diego last night if you're a Arizona State fan. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, so all of that uh, comes into play. Genesis is a tough place to start the Bible. I, I remember my daughter, when she was in junior high, decided she was going to read through the Bible. And my daughter's very systematic, very persevering. And someplace in Leviticus, she about croaked. And uh, over the next couple of years, she started two or three times to read through the Bible. And she died someplace in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, or Numbers. And I said, don't start there. Uh, you know, I, I'm saying start with Jesus, get into the Gospels, get yeah. that understanding. Someone asked about the Apocrypha. Yeah. Uh, what value does it place? Obviously, in the Roman Catholic Bible, there are hidden books that are not in mm-hmm. the Bible that most of us would have. What are, what are your thoughts on the value of those books? First of all, let's define what it is. The Apocrypha are collections of books, and the numbers vary. Uh, They're in the Bibles of liturgical churches, uh, Anglican Church, Catholic Church, uh, all the varieties of Orthodox Church, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Syriatic Orthodox, and and various uh, churches have various numbers, uh, 7, 11, 15 books. All of them were written in a period uh, from about 200 B.C. to 100 A.D., and they're in a genre called apocalyptic. And the apocalyptic genre is a very symbolic genre. Now, you've got to realize This is when they were written, but let's place this in the history of Israel. And that may explain why they were written. Uh, Israel had been taken in, 
well, the northern kingdoms destroyed by Assyria in 722 B.C., and then the southern kingdoms, Judah and, ben, and Benjamin, taken into captivity into Babylon in uh, 576, I believe. And uh, 70 years later, the Persians take over uh, and release them. They go back to Jerusalem. Their expectation is, based upon prophecy, is that with that release, they will be returned to their former glory. The kingship of David will be reestablished. And they're waiting and waiting and waiting for this. And it doesn't happen. So about 300 years go by, and then these books start to be written in an apocalyptic form, which is a symbolic form, based upon uh, visions. That's one of the key elements of... There's, there's one apocalyptic book in the New Testament, Revelation. Uh, you know, uh, heaven opens, a guide comes and, and leads somebody, the narrator, and tells them and explains things. This is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. But it's not prophecy. It is symbolic language about things that are going to occur. So apocalyptic literature arises in that 300-year period because the Jews are saying, we're done. We done gived up. We, We suffered in Babylon we suffered the release. We waited 300 years for an answer. It ain't happening. So these books are starting to be written, the book of Enoch, the book of uh, Maccabees. And in a way, they are encouraging the people of Israel to hang on. It's going to happen. Messiah is going to come. And uh, so that was the whole focus and purpose so, God, that's a long answer. For, and we haven't even gotten to the answer yet. Do they have any value for us? I think they have the same value the book of Revelation has. And the basic value of the book of Revelation, in my opinion, is to encourage the Christian that no matter what, hold on, persevere. God is in control. The end will be worth whatever you have to go through to get there. So would you take a valuable but not necessary approach? Yeah. Yeah. And this has been debated throughout Christianity. 1530s, Luther declared them to not be on the same par with the rest of Scripture. He removed them, placed them at the end of the Old Testament. In rebuttal to that... 1546, the Roman Catholic Council, I think of Trent, said, mm-hmm. no, they have the exact same uh, weight of Scripture, put them back in, and there was this division uh, that occurred. But I would agree with, with, with Ed, valuable but not, not necessary. Yeah. Uh, if you haven't read Scripture, uh, I would start with that uh, instead of jumping over to some of the uh, Apocrypha books. Now, that's, I think it does differ... Uh, because there's nothing in, in the Apocrypha that's going to change our faith. There are um, books in the New Testament that some would claim are new uh, revelations, 
new revelation that is not in our New Testament, and that does change aspects of faith. Personally, I would stay away from. Yeah, I'd stay away. The from Gnostic those. Gospels, the yeah. Gospel of James, the Gospel yeah. of Mary, uh, those sorts of things. Uh, the Da Vinci Code is full of all of those kinds of things. Yeah. If, if if you want to read that, one thing is. There are a lot of books that are in the New Testament that once were considered yeah. valuable but not necessary. Yeah. I mean, they fought over the book of James for a long time. In fact, Luther called it a strawy book. Straw. It was yeah. a piece, you know, it's really not worth it. You can't build anything on it. Personally, I think it's one of the great moral teachings uh, in the whole Bible. Uh, if you want to learn how to li- live, read the book of James. Uh, the the epistles of John were strongly debated. First and Second Peter, all of those were argued about, and they made it in, but uh, probably not till uh, uh, oh the fourth century. So in the three hundreds is is when they came in, and the, there have been holdouts for a hundred years after that that said, "Hmm, put it in your Bible, but I ain't reading it." One of the other uh, topics, uh, popularity, was on death. Um, what happens when we die? Uh, when does judgment occur? Um, can family members who have passed uh, still visit us? There were questions about this idea of traveling spirits. and what, Just what, give me your overview on yeah. the idea of death. You're going to skip the red letters, huh? Yeah, we'll hit that okay. later. Because that's a long rant. Uh, death, it happens. Uh, can dead family members hear us if we talk to them? You know, uh, the Apostles' Creed, which probably goes back to the for maybe the second century, so in the 100s A.D., uh, I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the uh, forgiveness, uh, the communion of saints. Well, the communion of saints is the communication with saints who are already dead. That's why the Catholic Church uh, encourages, and it's not really prayers to saints, it's uh, a supplication to a saint to offer a prayer on your behalf. So they would put family members in the same category. Of course, the Catholic Church has several levels of after death. Saints are people that are already in heaven, and then there's limbo, and there's purgatory, and and it does no good to pray to them because they don't have communication with God. So you've got to know where you're you're dead and... uh, predecessors are so uh, you know all things are possible I I don't think scripture is is uh, very affirming of the position there's lots of anecdotal evidence people will say uh, you know I, I felt a, a chill breeze and I knew my grandmother was present and it was almost like I could hear a whisper in my ear, and and 
but Scripture's not clear on, on, on any of those things. Really, it doesn't even lean towards that way. It would give very strong warning uh, to trying to contact the dead, going through mediums and things like that, oh, and yeah. engaging in those kinds Ouija. of activities uh, are actually... Matter of fact, uh, next week we start a series called The Forgotten Realm uh, that we will be looking into that... Uh, idea of, of the realm that we do not see, a spiritual realm. Mm-hmm. Um, so when someone dies, uh, what, what happens? All right, for a believer... Well, Paul or... says uh, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Uh, there's kind of a common idea that when we die, we go to heaven, and I, I don't believe that's so. Uh, I read a lot of theology by a fellow named... N.T. Wright, who's an Anglican bishop, and uh, N.T. says, um, I'm not so much uh, looking forward to life after death, I'm looking forward to life after life after death. Now, here's what he means. Life after death, to be absent uh, from the body is to be present to the Lord until the general resurrection when all the dead shall rise for judgment and then the righteous will be permanently uh, united with the Lord in uh, the new creation. And that's life after, life after death. So that's kind of his scenario and I, I, uh, I buy that. Of course, the... Catholic Church, which we have to remember is 50% of Christianity. So we so lightly dismiss, oh, that's just Catholic Church. But 50% of our brothers and sisters have been, have been taught, you know, a whole range of, of, of things, what happens when you, when you die, including, you know, purgatory. I, I, quick story, I was in Bible school and, uh, uh, the teacher asked one of the students who he knew was Catholic. I didn't know was Catholic. He says, Peter, you believe in purgatory, don't you? And Peter said, yeah, I do. And he says, well, uh, why do you believe that? And Peter said, it's in the Bible. And I'm, I'm about ready to swallow my little Protestant tongue, you know. I'm saying, where's that? He says, well, it's in 2 Maccabees, which is in the Apocrypha. So, uh, you know, we, we hear of things in Catholic and Orthodox theology, and we're saying, they just make this stuff up. And in reality, it's because they are taking the Apocrypha with an authority that Protestants don't give it. Does that make sense? So rather than just dismiss them, let's just agree that they have a different authority base than we have. That's good. Um, we're running out of time here. Um, let's uh, on, on Why this does that idea. happen every time I talk? On this idea of a uh, forgotten realm. Yep. What are your thoughts on the unseen out there? Well, this is one of the things that uh, 
really uh, got John Wimber started into the exploration that that led to the establishment of the of the vineyard. Um, he was teaching at at Fuller Seminary, and there was a professor there named uh, uh, Hebert. What's his last name? Peter Hebert, I believe. I'll get it for you. Um, anyway, he had written a book called The Excluded Middle. And John read the book, and it just blew his mind. And here's the basic premise of the book was uh, Hebert said that, uh, you know, Western mentality sees the world much different than Eastern mentality. And by Eastern, he would include uh, African and Australian Aboriginal. Uh, But Western mentality uh, sees a cosmology in two levels. There's the realm of the gods or God, which we call heaven, and then there's earth. And God lives in heaven and we live on earth and very seldom do we (laughs) interact Everybody else in the world, uh, which is, we call it the two-thirds world. Actually, it's, it's probably more like the uh, four-fifths world, sees it in three levels. There is this realm where God dwells. There is the earth where we dwell. And then there's this middle which is the realm of spiritual activity, angels and demons, and, and that's where our prayers are uh, blocked or, or not. And that is just their worldview. That's just, they go, Dad, why, why doesn't everybody believe that? And uh, that's what Hebert called the excluded middle, because in Western civilization... We have just excluded that, said it doesn't exist. And uh, it intrigued John Wimber uh, enough that he said, I've, I've got to explore this. And that led to the whole idea of, of exploring the idea of how do we interact in this spiritual realm. Um, yeah. And that's some of what we'll explore uh, next week. Um, you know, we talked about this idea of the forgotten God, of the Holy Spirit, and there is a, uh, a forgotten realm that we often neglect to realize that there is a spiritual adversary who seeks to do us harm. And uh, oftentimes we approach life uh, forgetting about that idea, uh, this idea of angels and the demonic taking place, and we'll share some some stories and hopefully some interviews with uh with someone if they would give permission um so we'll kind of explore that in the uh in the the weeks to come uh wednesday um ed is going to be at church here uh at 6 30 uh in the lobby and continuing this i'm sure there are questions that you have uh or maybe something that was asked that you want to I have further dialogue about. And so if you can carve out time uh, to come down for an hour and a half or so on Wednesday, uh, Ed will be here and you, we can have a dialogue about some of these things 
Uh, you can bring your questions. Ed can address some of the questions that we didn't, uh, did not get to. Uh, but I think it would be beneficial uh, for you, especially being able to ask a question uh, in relation to uh, what, what is being answered. So that'll be Wednesday at uh, 6.30 here in the lobby. Grab your Dutch Brothers or your Starbucks. Come on by uh, and kind of have an informal opportunity uh, to talk to uh, uh, about some questions of faith and things that maybe we're, we're wrestling with a little bit. Uh, I'll give you the final word. Oh, you weren't expecting that, were you? No. Why don't you close us in prayer? <laughs> the final word is always amen, isn't it? Or, or Maranatha, come yeah, quickly, Lord two. Jesus. Why don't you pray for us, would you? Father, we, uh, we're glad that our questions don't scare you. We're glad that uh, you allow us to be questioning beings. As long as we question with respect, seeking truth and knowledge and understanding... Because if we seek truth, we'll find you. Because Jesus, you said you are the truth. So uh, help us as we, as we uh, try and better expand our faith, knowing that it'll never be perfect or complete until the day we see you face to face. And that day is the day that we all long for. And so we pray as the ancient church prayed, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Guys, thank you for coming. Listen, if you're a guest, I'd love to meet you up here. Uh, Don't forget, register for the women's uh, conference, register for the men's conference. Uh, Tomorrow we'll have an informal prayer here, and then Wednesday will be the Can I Ask That Forum. God bless you guys.